This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning to everyone here. It's really nice to be back in person to be singing worship together. Um, but yeah, thank, uh, good morning to also those online or if you're watching later. Um, it's good to have you with us and part of this service today. Um, so yeah, so um, uh, my name is Jana and I've been at uh, this church for almost four years now, which is a little bit scary. Um, and if you've been following on with the series that we started this summer, uh, we've been talking about uh, our favorite Jesus stories. So when I was thinking about this and what I'd like to talk about, um, I realized that uh, I wanted to share my favorite thing about Jesus and what I think a lot of his stories um, that he tells, and a lot of the stories about Jesus point to, and that is grace. Um, so actually, before I came to Bristol, um, I did a year in Bath uh, working for a charity called UCCF which is a charity that works alongside students um, at universities, um, and it's called like a relay worker. It's like an intern year, uh, 10 months, and you spend half that year with students, um, working alongside them, uh, doing evangelism, encouraging them in their faith, um, and then you'll spend half that time doing a theology course, and we have conferences throughout the year. And it was at that first conference, we had a talk about grace, and I just had one of those moments where uh, like there's light bulb moments where something just clicks with you for the first time um, and a bit of a revelation um, and that was the first time I was like oh this is what grace is um, and um, so since then grace has been something that I have thought about a lot it's not something that I feel I understand I feel like it's kind of like an ethereal thing that um, you can't really quite grasp all at once at the same time but the more that I've thought about grace and the more that I have read about it for this talk I'm sure that there are a few things as central and as important and as unique to the Christian faith as grace. I think it is what allows us to be in relationship with God and what allows us to grow as his disciples and children. And I think it should shape all of our relationships and our lives. And so today, I want to talk about grace. I want to talk about what is grace? Uh, Why is it important to us? And why is it important to our relationships? Um, And to do this, I'll be sharing three stories from the gospel Um, about Jesus, which will hopefully show how Jesus put grace into action himself. Um, So as I said, I think grace is one of those words that I think we find hard to understand. Um, I'm doing a PhD at the moment, and as part of that, I attend lectures and um, on like new research. And often in those lectures, it'll start off if it's in a field I don't really know about. And the speaker will be like, now I'm sure you all know about this protein formation, so I'm just going to carry on ahead. Um, and it's in those moments that I feel like everyone else around me is going like, mm, yeah, yeah, definitely, please. And I'm there like, no, I don't understand what that is, please tell me. Um, and realize that, you know, for those next 45 minutes, I'm not going to understand anything because I don't know what that thing is. Um, and I feel like sometimes there can be things like that in our church with Christianity that we like, we know about, like, you know, the name and you know, like kind of what it is, but you don't actually know what it is. Uh, maybe words like righteousness or justification or propitiation to name a few. <laughs> And I think, we're not going to go through those, and I think grace can be one of those things as well that we find tricky to define, um, tricky to understand. So in my search to try and understand grace, I googled it. Uh, Google defines grace as the free and unmerited favor of God. Um, Wikipedia actually gave quite a good definition, which I was quite surprised at. It says, grace is the help given to us by God because God desires us to have it, not necessarily because we've done anything to earn it. Another one um, was from a guy called Paul Zoll. He wrote in his book, Grace in Practice. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. It is one way love. 
Or put more simply, grace is unconditional love given to the undeserving. And I think looking through those quotes, I think it shows that there's quite a few different elements to grace. I think it's difficult to define it in just one sentence because it encompasses so many other things. Grace is love and it is mercy and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness. All of those things rolled into one. And I think if you look at it from the other angle, I don't think we experience any of those, any you know, God's love or his mercy or forgiveness, etc., without experiencing his grace also. I think it's what is at the core of God's love and mercy and forgiveness over us. And I think through that, it means that it's not just, it's not just an emotion. It's not just an action or a feeling. Um, another quote from a guy called Michael Horton says, grace then is not a third thing, a substance mediating between God and us, but it is Jesus Christ in redeeming action. Interestingly, when I was looking through the gospels and looking into grace, uh, you find that Jesus never actually said the word grace, which I thought was a great start uh, for this talk. Um, and the word grace appears just four times throughout the Gospels, and none of those times is Jesus saying it. But even though Jesus never said this word directly, I think grace defined Jesus' ministry. I think it's at the heart of the Gospel message, and I think if we read the Gospel stories through that lens of grace, we can see how it shaped each of Jesus' interactions, each of his relationships. And just as we might say God is love, I think equally we could describe Jesus as grace. And so why should this be important to us on our faith? Um, I think today in our Western society, we are quite drawn, or at least the society we live in, the culture we live in, is quite drawn to the ideas of karma, or like contracts, of transactions, of give and take, where there's expected outcomes for expected work. Um, one of the things my housemate likes to say, quite dramatically, um, in response to less dramatic things like when her TV show isn't on or we run out of like biscuits, is like, why do bad things happen to good people? Um, and I think there's so much you can say about that, but I think what's underpinning it, what's, um, what the core belief behind that statement is, is basically you get what you deserve. If I'm good, why do bad things happen to me? And we see this throughout our lives. Like, if you study hard, you should get good grades. If I work hard, I should get good money. If I'm nice, good things should happen to me. And one, that's our central message as we grow up. You have to earn what you receive. But we know that grace is different. Um, Henry Ironside, an American theologian for the 20th century, said grace is the very opposite of merit. It is not only undeserved favor, but it is favor shown to the one who has deserved the very opposite. And to us or our society, this can seem very unfair or unjust. Um, I feel like I'm doing a lot of quotes, but there's so many good things I read. So this one's from an article in the New York Times, actually, um, which sums it up really well. It says, grace is a difficult concept to understand because it isn't entirely rational. There's a radical equality at the core of grace. None of us are deserving of God's grace, so it's not dependent on social status, wealth, or intelligence. There's equality between kings and peasants, the prominent and the unheralded, rule followers and rule breakers. Just like with so many other things in our society or culture, often how we view things is the opposite of how God sees them. Uh, just as we see that you have to earn what you receive, God says, no, you don't. I've done everything you need. And I think this is important because what we think about grace or what we don't think about grace will shape our relationships here. It will shape how we respond to our family, to our friends, and to strangers. 
And this will inevitably imprint on our relationship with how we respond to God as well. Just for a moment, I'd like you to think about what is the biggest thing that you struggle with in your faith or walk with God? What sometimes holds you back from, from going to God, from talking to him, from spending time with him, from asking help or guidance? I think if we don't live in the light of God's grace, we miss risking out on truly understanding his love and forgiveness and mercy. We risk not believing him when he says, I love you, I forgive you, and you are precious to me. So what does it mean to live in God's grace, and how did Jesus show this? Um, I was going to have a nice slide which showed this up, but the first point is that grace um, means that God is for us, that we have God's favor, favor over us. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, um, he goes into a local temple and he reads the daily reading for that day, which happened to be two verses from the book of Isaiah. Those verses were, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So these verses were written by Isaiah, which is about 700 years before Jesus actually read them. Um, But even though Isaiah was the one that wrote them, they actually point towards Jesus. And later on in Luke, Jesus goes on to say that he is the fulfillment of those verses, that those verses are actually about him. And of course, if we've read any more of the Gospels, you know that's, that's part of what he came to do, is to preach the good news. And it's easy to look at those verses and just to think they're about people who are poor, or are in prison, or are blind. Uh, to just focus on the physical element of those verses, which are true. Um, But these these words are also directed at all of us. Without God, all of us are trapped in sin and are blind to God. And so there are two things that I want to bring bring out from these verses about grace. The first is that God, through Jesus, has come to bring us good news. He's come to free us, whether that's meant in a physical sense or a spiritual sense. God cares about us and where we're at. He cares where we are physically and spiritually. He cares about what is trapping us, about what is stealing our freedom and our peace. He cares about whether we feel oppressed or weighed down. He cares about you and he is for you. Do you believe that of God over your life? And there is no caveat in that statement. It's not like, I've come to the poor, but only if they're really holy and nice, or if they're really godly, or if they deserve to be healed. It's a message and a promise that is open to everybody. Um, But just like any gift, it has to be accepted to be received and opened. And the second thing um, is that last line right at the end where it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is actually a reference um, back to Leviticus. It's also known as the year of Jubilee. It refers to a command that God said over the Israelites after they'd left Um, Egypt and was telling them about how he thinks they should live in community and with each other. And so every 50 years, you'd have the year of Jubilee, which is where God said, I want you to um, have a year of celebration, a year of liberty. As you may know, in the Bible, certain numbers are very important. So 50 was just the culmination of seven times seven, 49. Um, The idea that at the end of seven years of, seven times seven years of Sabbath, that we have a big celebration year. And in that year, God commanded that all Hebrew slaves who had been enslaved to other clans because of debt were to be set free. Land or property that had been sold off to other clans because either for money or because they couldn't afford it 
was to be given back to the original owners at no cost. This is why it was a year of celebration, because those who were in debt had their debt cleared. Uh, those who were enslaved were set free, and those who were homeless were given their land back. And it's not because of anything they'd done. They didn't have to pay to be free. They didn't have to pay to get their land back. It just was given back to them. They didn't earn what they needed, but it didn't matter because they received it anyway. And this is what Jesus, Jesus declared then and what he's declaring now. He's saying in that proclamation, he has come to bring the year of Jubilee, not just once every 50 years, but for every single year. Because of Jesus and his death on the cross, we don't have to earn our way back to him, but we can be freed from what enslaves us, whether that is bad habits or addictions or difficult thoughts or illness, and we can return home to him um, with no merit, just because he has done it already all for us. The second thing about grace that I think Jesus shows us is that grace is forgiveness, always. Uh, There's a quote by C.S. Lewis which says, forgiveness is a lovely idea until we have something to forgive. And I think here C.S. Lewis is tapping into something we can recognize in all of us, at least I can recognize it in myself. I think uh, we can be prone to wanting really quick absolution or forgiveness from others, like please, I just want this to go back to normal, like please can we just move on and forget about it? But then we can be prone to holding on to grudges and grievances that others have done to us. We can be prone to not forgetting or forgiving. Um, I grew up with four brothers, and we did argue a lot growing up. And one of the things that was really frustrating is that often we'd argue, and it'd be about silly things. And my brothers would argue about the thing we're arguing about, and then I would suddenly come out with like a list of all these other things. Like, we didn't put that away then, last week you didn't do this, and then you didn't do this. And they're like, what are you on about? Like, we're talking about this right now. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm talking about all of these things. I have that list of um, these things I've held on to, things I've done that they've annoyed me that I'm still holding on to. And in that moment, my brother's like, what are you on about? I thought that was in the past. Uh, But for me, it wasn't. And in Matthew 18, 21 to 22, a disciple of Jesus approaches um, Jesus to ask him about forgiveness. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. To give some context, in Jesus' time, Jewish law stated that someone should be given up to three times only for a sin. And this is what all rabbis preached in the area. That's it, three times. So I can imagine Peter in this moment is probably thinking like, surely his answer is way above what's expected. It's more than double what other religious people are doing. You know, double plus one. So, you know, it has to be the right answer. Surely Jesus is going to be impressed. But no matter how generous or forgiving Peter thinks he's being, his question reveals that, just like the rabbis of the Jewish law, he believes forgiveness should be conditional and limited. By putting a number on it, Peter's drawing a line in the sand and saying, no, that's it, seven times. Like, after that, you're done. You're done to me. And it may seem strange to us to have put a specific number on forgiveness, especially for a religious community to put a number on how many times you should forgive someone. But I think even if we don't actively count up arguments or the wrongs of others against us, can we honestly say that we forgive uncondition- we give unconditional forgiveness to others? Can we say that we, you know, we don't have a number in mind, but have we ever gone, just like Peter, right, that's it, I'm done with forgiving you? 
And I think there's a really important caveat here, which isn't to say that we should accept anything and everything that people do to us. Of course, there are times that we should walk away from harmful situations and relationships, but we can forgive others without condoning their behavior. And that's what's in Jesus' response. He says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And Jesus is not giving an actual number here. He's not trying to say, my number 77. He's trying to make a point, which is basically that whilst Peter is concerned about finding the upper limit for forgiveness, Jesus is saying there is no limit to my forgiveness. Whilst Peter is stuck in what the law was telling him to do, Jesus responds in grace. Jesus has, and he is, and he will always forgive us. In Psalm 103, one of the verses says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our sins from us. The point here is that we shouldn't be keeping score or holding grudges, just as God doesn't keep score with us. As God is gracious in his forgiveness to us, we can extend that grace to others. His grace in us can be that outpouring into those around us. And isn't that the type of relationships and community and family that we'd all like to live in? Um, The final point was that grace means that we have the power to change. Or grace is the power to change. Um, The final story I want to talk about was Luke 4, which is about the woman, um, the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, You may have heard this story before. Um, It's basically a story where Jesus uh, is with his disciples and they go off to get food and they leave Jesus by a well. Um, in the middle of the day. And Jesus is there alone until a Samaritan woman comes and she's collecting water from the well for herself. In their conversation, uh, it's revealed that she is a local outcast. She's rejected and despised by her community because of her past. And so none of the other women will associate with her. Normally they would have come to the well together in the morning or evening, uh, but she's here alone because no one wants to be with her. And as they talk, the woman remains suspicious of who Jesus is and what he wants. But by the end, he offers her his living water. He offers her salvation. And he reveals to her who he is, that he is the coming Messiah. And we don't know the name or age of this woman, uh, but this conversation is actually the longest one-to-one encounter with Jesus in Scripture. And it's also the first time that Jesus reveals who he is to someone else uh, in the whole of the Bible. It's his first time that he says, I am the Messiah. Um, And I've skipped reading most of this story. Um, I hope I've given you a gist because I just wanted to focus on the ending. It says, um, this is the woman. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town that she'd come from and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? The people came out of the town and made their way towards Jesus. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritan came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and Jesus stayed two days. And because of Jesus' words, many more became believers. In just this one encounter, the Samaritan woman is changed. She begins as someone who is alone, who is despised, who no longer associate with others because she's scared of just being rejected, as someone who's suspicious of others and what what she perceives that they, they want from her. And her suspicion of Jesus is understandable in this, in this story. In a cultural context, it was completely unheard of for a Jew to talk to a Samaritan, let alone for a man to talk to a woman without her husband or family present. It just wasn't done. And it's also what makes Jesus' revelation to her that he's the Messiah so amazing. 
As one theologian put it, Jesus breaks open boundaries in his conversation with the Samaritan woman. The boundary between male and female, between chosen people and rejected people. Jesus' journey to Samaria and his conversation with the woman demonstrate that the grace of God that he offers is available to all. And it's this encounter that changes her. As Jesus shares who he is, as he opens up this woman, he's showing her that she is important and that she is worthy and that she is accepted by him. And no longer rejected or scared to associate with others, she rushes off back to the town. This is the woman who came to the well on her own in the middle of the heat of the day just to make sure that she would be on her own so she could avoid others. And now she's the one running back to her town to chat to anyone that she can see to tell them about Jesus. And what I think is at the heart of her transformation, of her excitement and wonder about Jesus, is that he accepts her as she is. I can imagine that conversation as Jesus reveals to her that he says, you know, I know your past. I know that you've had five husbands. I know that the person you're now living with is not your husband. I can imagine her horror. She's like, oh gosh, this person knows about me. He knows my secrets. He knows this thing that I'm probably really ashamed about. This thing that's caused other people to reject me. Imagine like that, the deep pain when you have felt very exposed to someone and you're wondering, what are they going to do with that information? What are they going to do now? But unlike her community, Jesus doesn't reject her. Even when he knows the darkest thing about her and it drives her towards Jesus and to sharing his gift of salvation with others. We all know that connection is driven by vulnerability. If you've ever seen that fridge magnet or coaster, um, I think my grand used to have it, it said, we'll always be friends, you know too much. Um, often our deepest relationships are those, uh, are those that we have with people where we've shared the most with them, who know the most about us, who know the really good bits and the nice shiny bits, and also the bits that we'd rather hide and stuff down. Um, I definitely see this in my relationship with my mum. Um, my mum is very wise, and I often ring her to ask for advice, and my dad too, because he's here, but definitely my mum. And I remember once um, phoning my mum, um, I think it was over Skype actually, because something had happened at work, and I wanted to chat to her, and I was like, it was confusing, I was like, we had this conversation with my boss, and then this happened, and I said this, and this happened, and there was like a pause in the conversation. You know that pause where you tell someone's like trying to work out what to say, and you're like, okay, just say it, like, let me have it. And as I was saying like, oh yeah, no, I said this thing, mum's like, Mm. So yeah, you do that to me, and it's actually really annoying. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. And it's as we're talking about that, that I was able to see you know, what had happened in that situation with my boss and why things had turned out as they had, and to get some clarity on it. And I think, because I know that I'm unconditionally loved by my mum, I can accept correction from her. Because I know that she already knows me inside out, I know that I can bring things to her and that she won't reject me or love me any less than she already does. In her acceptance, there's freedom for me to come as I am, to be who I am. There's also space and safety to grow and learn and change. And at the heart of that love is grace. It is grace because it is a gift to me. I didn't earn it. And it's also because she doesn't have to love me unconditionally. It's her choice to. And just as with the Samaritan woman, we are accepted and unconditionally loved by God now and always. But also like her, I don't believe that God intends to leave us as we are. As John Piper put it, he said, grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. Grace is power because it lets us be confident in God's love for us. 
whilst also giving us the space to grow and change. We can make mistakes, we can fall down and we can get back up. We can even wander away from God and come back, being confident that his love for us doesn't change. And, but if we let it, his love can transform and change us. To put it another way, we can know that his love isn't dependent on us changing, but that in his love, he can't help but change us. With that, I'd just like to go back to the questions that I asked right at the beginning. So I asked, what is the biggest thing you struggle with in your walk of faith with God? What sometimes holds you back from approaching God? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Hebrews 4, 16. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I love the first bit of that verse. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. The message version of the Bible puts it like this. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give us. It is so definite and sure. It's like a come on, or let's just go to God. I think when I reflect on those questions of what holds you back from going to God and trusting in him, is that I don't always have that confidence or reassurance. So often I focus on what I have done, how distance I feel from God that I feel scared to approach him. I have no confidence. So when I'm too busy looking at myself, I miss the grace of God's favor, the grace of his forgiveness and of his power to change me. When I'm too busy focusing on myself and what I'm holding on to, I can't accept the gift of his grace. And that's why this verse is such, I think to me, a great reminder. It's a reminder to step forward into that grace because it is in grace that we can approach his throne in confidence. It is in grace that we can turn to God and return to him again and again and again. As we come to finish, if you want to, I just invite you to stand um, quickly, if you'd like. I'd just like to just reflect on those three parts of grace that Jesus showed us. The grace of his favor, the grace of his forgiveness, and the grace of his transforming power. I just take some time. I just wonder if there's any of those that resonate with you. If there's any of those that you really struggle to believe, actually. Do you struggle to believe that God is for you and that he cares for you? Do you struggle to believe that God has forgiven you for everything? Or are you struggling to share that forgiveness with someone else? Or is there something you just can't shake? No matter how hard you try, there's something. Is there something that you need to accept God's power of change for? If you want to, you can just take a moment and just, is there anything that the Holy Spirit is prompting you there? Is there anything that stands out to you? Like, yes, I'd like to receive more grace over that. And if there's not, maybe you feel confident approaching God and you feel confident in his grace. I just ask you, is there anything you can pray over someone else? Is there someone else that you know that you can pray of who might need God's forgiveness? Who might need to know that they are loved and accepted by God? And just as we are in this space, um, I'm going to ask Joel and Juliet to come up and they're going to lead us in a short time of worship. Um, so if you want to stay and pray and meet with God, you can do. Um, and so just to finish, I'm just going to pray to close. Dear God, I thank you um, for your grace. I thank you that it is never ending. Um, I thank you that um, your grace speaks of your love and your mercy, your forgiveness, your kindness and gentleness to us. Pray that in this space that you'd come to us and meet with us where we're at, that we know that we are fully accepted and unconditionally loved 
by you. And I pray that as we approach you, we'll begin to see ourselves as you do, as precious, as valuable, as worth being chased down, um, that we are chosen and sought after and saved. And that no matter what place we're in, no matter what we've done, no matter where we are or where we're going, that there is nothing that we can do to make you love us any less. Amen.